Welcome to On DOD on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. Now, your host, Jared Serbu. Glad you're with us this week. And on this edition of the program, open source and how the Department of Defense is using it or how it can use it. Because at least on a meaningful scale, it's mostly not. Whether we're talking about adopting and reusing code that's been developed by the open source community or whether we're talking about DOD contributing back to that community. That's partly because it's actually somewhat complicated to do so from a legal and licensing perspective based on the mechanisms and traditional approaches we have in place to buy and build software within the government. Part of the reason is that, somewhat counterintuitively, open source software is generally copyrighted and then licensed so that the author keeps some degree of control over how it's shared and modified. And government work generally isn't eligible for copyright, at least in the U.S. Those thorny legal issues are among some of the challenges the Defense Digital Service set out to solve a year ago when it launched Code.mil. DDS has just relaunched that project. Our guests to talk about what's new with the relaunch are Jordan Casper and Ari Chavukula. They're both engineers on the Code.mil team. And Ari and Jordan, thanks to both of you for doing this. And the first uh, obvious question to ask here is why we're calling this a relaunch. So um, what what's happened over the past year? What's different? How, how have you moved the ball forward on open source since March of 2017? Sure, I, I can handle that. So uh, when we originally launched, the the goal is the same as it is now. We're trying to in we're trying to facilitate the department in open sourcing um, code projects. Since then, we've gotten a lot of feedback from uh, users, both military and civilian within the government, as well as uh, had multiple conversations with people in the free and open source community. And uh, the, the, what, what we've learned from that is that what would really help is a suite of tools that help that walk people through the common flows and information that they need. And so that's really what the website's about, uh, ensuring accessibility uh, for people who want to open source their code so that the barriers are as low as possible. One, one extra thing there, yeah, is um, the, the suite of tools is absolutely right. The, originally, the, the original tool was just a GitHub repository, and GitHub's great, I, uh, but that's not as accessible. So the, the original deployment was a bunch of text, black and white, on a page somewhere. The suite of tools are, is what's really new about this. It's going to make it much easier for people to understand uh, within the DoD and outside the DoD what we're trying to do with Code.mil. Um, and the other thing is that the 2018 NDAA happened, <laughs> which basically instructs the DoD to actually do this. So oh, to, to add one thing to that, uh, I, I guess a way to think of it is that the, the original website, the GitHub page, was great for coders. The new website is great for coders, policy people, people of any background who want information on government open source. So let's talk about what the suite of tools is trying to do. I mean, talk about the problem set that you're trying to overcome. Why, why is developing open source really anywhere in the government different than, than traditional approaches uh, might take? I'll take that. So this is Jordan. The suite of tools is, so first of all, the code.mil is guidance, right? We're talking about guidance for how the DoD can best uh, open source the things that they produce and best use uh, open source and be good open source community participants. Um, the, the struggles that they have are many, um, but very few of them are actually technical. People in the DOD, military service members, but also contractors are doing really good work. They're doing a lot of software projects, writing a lot of code that is good and is, has a lot of potential for reuse or just improvement uh, either by 
other agencies in the government, other people within DOD, or the community at large. And what we're hearing is that people have no idea how to actually do this. Um, the, the developers are contacting us and saying, we have gotten approval to release this, but we have no idea how to actually do that. Or we want to release this, and we have no idea how to get approval to do that. And so the guidance that we're providing is not so much on the technical side of things. It's on the uh, administrative side of things. How do you get that approval? What are the copyright implications and the legal implications? And our team has done that that track down of uh, policy and and law that, that allows us to actually uh, open source things. And so this is probably a good point to talk about the difference between public domain and open source and why that difference matters. How And, and tag, along, tag on to that question, how you guys are approaching licensure to the extent that you are through this project. So the public domain question, for those of you who aren't familiar, generally speaking, uh, when when someone in the government produces anything, and this could be code, it could be literally anything, their their work is generally public domain. And what that basically means is the public has the right to use it because you're, you're government servants, you're public servants, right? Uh, so the question is, when you go to public domain, do you have any actual copyright? And the answer is not really, but with a bunch of caveats. And one of those caveats, first of all, is only within the boundaries of the United States. So, for example, as we all know, we're in a global community now. When we produce code, everyone can access it from everywhere if you, you know, release it publicly. So someone trying to use this code in uh, England, for example, we do have copyright law there. And so you want to be able to attach um, a proper open source license that indicates exactly how this code should be used you know, for any given code project. Um, and within the bounds of the United States, we still want to provide that guidance. Now, that's for stuff that government entities are actually producing. But there's this whole other aspect of the fact that DOD doesn't really write a lot of code. Uh, contractors write, write a lot of it, right? And if we want to take those things and make those things reusable, um, those aren't public domain. Those are written by contractors, by private entities, or you know, maybe public, public companies, but they're not government. And so those actually do retain copyright. And so we want to also figure out how we can integrate better with um, the, the mixed bag. Right. When there are both contractor written and government written things, how do you structure that uh, open source license? And so that's a lot of the guidance that, that has come out of Codano as well. And as you guys kind of indicated before, I think there's broad recognition across DOD about the, the, the potential benefits of developing in open source ways. And I mean, there are some examples. I mean, Forge.mil is a thing where, where, where people do collaborate in, a, in an open source spirit on, on developing software. But it's kind of closed off to the rest of the world. So I don't know what you'd call that community source. So, I mean, I guess my question is, how is that different from truly open source? And what are the benefits you see from, you know, again, truly open source development? Hey, this is Ari. Um, the, the goal here is to make sure that we get public participation that because in, for any code that, that is open source, it, it has public ownership, the U.S. taxpayers paid for it. We want to make sure that People can use it for other purposes, that people can contribute security fixes or feature or features. Uh, for some types of work, uh, if it's in any way related to national security, the code can't necessarily be released externally. Uh, and so then it is important that we have ways for people within the government to uh, share code with each other and do the same sort of development. Uh, and so I think in the end, it's really a question of what the systems are being used for and what the utility to the public would be. 
but the goal at a high level would be that uh, any code that can be open sourced, it would be good to open source it. And so we want to make that process as easy as possible. And and what's what's the specific digital service role here beyond as you guys have kind of indicated already providing pathways for people? Are you are you developing code on your own? And if so, any examples you want to share? That's a great question. Uh, this is Jordan. So that kind of gets to the role of defense digital service just more generally. So I'll I'll do the, the like two seconds on that. <laughs> Not two seconds, probably two minutes, uh, and then get to what we're actually doing on code.mil. Um, so Defense Digital Service is one of the agency teams branched off of the United States Digital Service um, under the White House. And so uh, the DDS is completely rooted in DOD. We operate completely within the department, and so we handle only uh, DOD uh, issues. And so our role here is to make tech better. And that's the role of all of USDS. We want to make tech better in government. We want to improve the services that are provided to our service members, um, to civilians that are working uh, within the department in any location around the world. And so we come in and, and try and help anywhere we can. That said, we don't typically own things. Um, Defense Digital Service, you can think of it as a, uh, a SWAT team of nerds that go in and try and help the good people that are doing the work on the ground and then prop them up, give them the support they need, give them the tools they need, give them the cover that they need, and then get out. And so uh, Code.mil is one of our longer-lasting projects because um, it's more guidance and um, not, uh, not a direct product, per se. It's a, you know, it's a static website right now. And so uh, we've been on that for about a year now, since February of 2017. Um, what we generally do is prop things up, get them going, and then hand them off. So one of the examples of that, um, a service that uh, many of your listeners might know of, uh, the Defense Personal Property System, DPS. This is a system that people use to change duty stations. So Defense Digital Service came in, realized the system was crumbling, and, and, and people were asking us for our help. And so we, um, we are actively rewriting that application with a new modern software development contractor, someone who's going to use modern software development practices, iterative development, uh, proper developer operations, and stand up a, a new system that will be much better for those uh, service members and their families. And so uh, we are aiding in that acquisition process so that we can acquire a good contractor in a short amount of time, be able to uh, do rapid development, um, do proper user research, make sure that we're building the right product for the right person and doing the most benefit. And then eventually we're going to hand that off to Transcom because Transcom is the owner of that system. And so we're training Transcom on how to do modern software development as well. And so in the end, they'll be able to own that. So what does DDS own? Hardly anything. We provide a lot of guidance, a lot of help. And so code.mil is one of those areas where we saw a need across the department. And it's an area that we can work very well with because we sit uh, directly under the secretary's office and are able to thus operate very horizontally across DOD. So this is Ari. Uh, to, to add uh, more specificity to DDS's role in code.mil, um, on the Department of Defense side, we, uh, we facilitate open sourcing. We make sure that everyone has the context information they need to, to move forward with that, to understand the benefits and to do so. Uh, externally, we make sure we work through code.mil to make sure that there's an index of open source projects so that they're easy to find. Uh, however, the, the open source project listing does not have to be specific to our GitHub account. People can open source, or the DOD teams can open source code through their own accounts and other locations and simply register them with the site to be listed. The goal isn't to have every single bit of code on that one GitHub.
That's Ari Chavukula, a policy wrangler with the Defense Digital Service. Jordan Casper, an engineer with DDS, is also with us. We'll come back and talk more about the relaunch of Code.mil after a short break. This is on DOD on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Jared Serbu. Back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM, this is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu, talking with Jordan Casper and Ari Chavukula, two engineers with the Defense Digital Service, about the recent relaunch of Code.mil, a project to help DOD organizations figure out how to navigate through some of the challenges involved in using open source software within government and open sourcing the government's own code. And Ari and Jordan, is there... Is there a reluctance that you've sensed throughout the department to open source projects to begin with just because they're associated with with national defense? And, And to the extent that there is, do you guys see yourselves in the business of evangelizing for open source processes and trying to dispel any unfounded concerns that people might have about it? Hey, this is Ari. So... We, we do spend a lot of time evangelizing. Uh, I, I, there's, there's sort of a shift um, in, in uh, perception over time, which is similar both for DDS and for Code.mil. In DDS's early days, we were going out, introducing ourselves, making sure people understood what we offered, and then delivering on projects that we picked up. At this point, people have started to come to us to give us projects, and we have, we have more offers than we're able to, to work on. Uh, Code.mil is sort of similar. So it's been running for a year now. Initially, it was a question of outreach, making sure people knew we existed, uh, making sure that we facilitated initial projects, that we got results. Um, and at this stage, we have a lot of success stories. And so we are able, pe- people are often coming to us. We do still go out. We do still talk to different agencies. Um, but in large part, the media attention, including from interviews like this, have really helped uh, open the floodgates. And in that, in that context, I mean, what's the pitch? What do you tell people the benefits are that they can derive from, from doing things in an open source way? So I, I guess I would, I would want to highlight two different benefits, and then I want to hand it off to Jordan. So the, the first one is about uh, security. If you open source your code, then it is a statement that you are, you are confident about the security posture of your system, and you are putting it in a place where people can automatically scan for vulnerabilities. There are security researchers where all they do is they scan through every single public repository and they check for known security vulnerabilities or new ones as they come out and they alert the people who, uh, who own the code. And so it's a very good way to get proactive um, reports and also contributions of fixes. Uh, the second is the ability to add features. Uh, there are a lot of governmental systems that are meta systems made to tie into other, into other locations. And if you open source those systems, people can repurpose them for whatever their, whatever their uses. Um, more specifically, if you have a system that, whose goal is to pull in data from a number of different sources and then produce reports, it's something that the public uh, would have a direct use for. Uh, companies, private industry, other governmental agencies could. Once they have it, they can start contributing. They, if they improve it in any way, they can contribute those features back, and they make the DOD's product itself stronger. Yeah, this is Jordan. So I, I, those are two hugely important ones. The um, the security posture uh, point is, is particularly relevant um, given the fact that defense. One of the other projects that Defense Digital Service works on is a program called Hack the Pentagon. Yeah, you might have heard of it. It uh, was the first vulnerability disclosure program, uh, VDP, operated within uh, the Pentagon. And the idea behind those is to have good people that know security well that 
you might call hackers, but can find those vulnerabilities for you by employing white hat techniques. Uh, they can go in and improve your security posture. So we, we found a lot of, you find resistance to open source in all sorts of places. And one of the biggest things that we hear is that uh, open source isn't secure. And they say that if we put our code out there, people will know our vulnerabilities. The fact is they know your vulnerabilities already. Probing systems is not that difficult. And so what we want to do is not necessarily try and hide those vulnerabilities. That's actually a, a you know, security by obscurity just simply doesn't work. But if you put those out there and you can iterate on them very, very quickly and fix those, patch those vulnerabilities in a matter of hours, not months, which is what we've seen in some systems of the DoD, then you can significantly include the posture of that system, which, by the way, because all those systems are connected, improves, improves the security posture of the entire Department of Defense in the United States government. And so that, that is honestly a huge, huge benefit. The community engagement is the other aspect. Um, Ari mentioned sharing code across uh, the DoD and across the federal government, but it's also just about being transparent and showing the American people what we've been building for them and what we've been spending this money on and, and why this is good and, and giving them a chance to give back if they want. You know, I'm in defense digital service and so is Ari because we wanted to give back to our country and, and we are trying to do good work from within the system, but people can do that from outside if you open this, these things up to the, to the world. Uh, one, one shining example of that, I think, uh, at least for government sharing, is um, a project called AdvisorNet, ain't it? This was a project that the Defense Digital Service actually took on. We actually coded this one ourselves, <laughs> the, the initial version. Um, it was a system for reporting activities in theater by advisors. So, uh, you know, U.S. advisors in Afghanistan that are reporting on educational programs or whatnot can come in and submit these reports, um, and it's got a very, a very nice workflow process. Well, lots of other people need to do a very similar thing, you know, produce reports and have a workflow process for them, approval process. So we actually handed that system off to NATO. NATO is now maintaining it. It's completely in the open. It's always been in the open. And now we're seeing places like DHS looking at it. Could they use it for something? The Marines are looking at it for using something. For something. And um, AFRICOM is looking at using it for something. And so we're seeing this reuse within the government. But we're also getting con contributions. We actually got a security vulnerability disclosure a few months ago. I don't remember the exact uh, month. Where someone from the public submitted an issue and said, hey, you've got a big hole. It's right there. And guess what? We had that patched, I think it was later that day or early the next morning. And so that's the benefit that we're seeing in like concrete examples of those benefits. And, and Jordan, I'm so glad you raised Hack the Pentagon hey. because if, go oh. ahead, go, go ahead, Ari. Sorry, yeah, I, I just wanted to add, so yeah, Hack the Pentagon is important. Uh, the, another way to phrase security benefits is that uh, open sourcing code for a system designed in a secure way, which all DOD systems should be, does not lower the bar for exploitation of a given system. But it does dramatically lower the bar for, for external contributions to fix vulnerabilities in the system. Uh, it's going to be a lot easier for someone to scan through code, find issues, report them, than it is for someone to get permission to actively attempt to hack into a system. Uh, but for the the active component, I'm going to hand it back because it sounds like you want to talk about Code.mil, uh, yeah. Hack the Pentagon, rather. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I'm, Jordan, I'm glad you raised Hack the Pentagon because it, if if you were skeptical about open source within within DoD, one of the things you might say is, look, the the developer community out there has a ton of choices in terms of the projects they want to work on, and and why would they choose to spend their time in a way that you could view as essentially donating their time to the U.S. Department of Defense, which has more money than God. But I think one of the things Hack the Pentagon showed us is that uh, people are willing to contribute their time if they have these kinds of talents for patriotic reasons, among others. 
Yeah, as people aren't donating their time to the American government, we actually can't accept uh, free work. What you're doing is contributing to an open tool that anyone could have or use, and the government is also contributing to that open tool. It's actually a very important distinction um, because it's actually illegal for people, for the government to accept free labor. Yep, great um, we must pay for our labor. So it just it, it's a fine point, but at the same time, it's really important because the fact is I personally, on my free time, contribute to a number of open source projects. Uh, these open source projects are sometimes sponsored by companies and sometimes they're sponsored by individuals. And why do I do it? I enjoy it. I enjoy making tools that, that help myself and help other people in their work. And this is the same thing. So why would someone take their time and contribute to a government project versus another one? Well, because it's a good tool and it solves a problem and why not? Um, the point about being patriotic though is really important. And, and, making your government systems better benefits everyone in the country. And it benefits them because it improves our security posture um, internationally. It improves the services that you might directly benefit from or someone you know, right? If you contribute to uh, move.mil, move.mil is the public facing website for the um, defense personal property system. Well, if you make that information better, you're improving service members' lives. So how many service members do you know, or does your partner know, or does your mother or father know? I mean, you're, you're improving everyone, and you're bringing the whole country up. And our are in defense digital service for that very reason, because we want to bring um, the whole country up. And we are specifically not in private industry where, uh, you know, you might make more money, you might have more perks, you get stock benefits, you have... You know, better working conditions in terms of the office. You know, the Pentagon's great, but kind of an old building. But like, you know, you you we're doing this because we want to benefit, and that's how we're helping. But people don't have to do that. They can help in lots of ways, and open source development is one of those ways. Okay, Jordan. Since you started taking us into the legal weeds, I'm going to ask you to go a little bit further because the, I mean, this this really is the hard part, and this is the part that, that I think you guys have worked on the most. Describe a little bit how a little bit more how the whole licensing process works. And I guess it's really not a licensing process because you're not putting licenses on government written code under the approach that you're laying out. You're using something called a developer certificate of origin. Can you describe the distinction there? Yeah, uh, this is Jordan. I'll, I'll take a first stab at that. And Ari, please jump in if if I uh, when I've missed something, I'm sure I will. Um, the so as we talked about earlier, the code developed by any government entity is public domain within the bounds of the United States. But again, that does not extend beyond our borders. And in fact, most countries will in fact support our copyright. So it is actually important to attach an open source license, a, a normal, common open source license, MIT license, ISC, BSD3, uh, Apache 2. Uh, there's lots of licenses you can pick from. I encourage you to go investigate what their differences are on your own. But attachment of licenses is important anytime you're going to publicly release code within the government um, because of international reasons. Um, but within the United States, what do we do? So we have a process that takes uh, two, diff I guess, two and a half different forms. The first step is an intent. We have a license. Let's say it's MIT. That we attach to a project. And in addition to that, we put an intent behind that. And the intent document is saying we recognize that this doc, that this product work product is public domain. However, we also recognize that people want some guidance. People being not government agents, uh, U.S. government agents, want guidance in how to interact with this project. So our intent with this product is that you will treat it as an MIT licensed uh, software product. 
And that gives them some guidance of what can I do with it? What, what are my limits here? And, or not my limits, but what, what, are, what are the things that they want me to do with it? How do they want contributions to come in? And so that gets to the second point, which you mentioned, the DCO process, the Developer Certificate of Origin. And the point there is to say uh, that when a public contributor gives up some code, right, writes some code for an open source project, what, is, what rights do they have or don't they have? The certificate of origin says that that developer is the origin of that work product and that it did not come from any company and that they are not expecting any money from it. Um, the DCO is actually used for a lot of projects and you can go and uh, check it out online and just Google, you know, developer certificate of origin, you'll find it. Uh, and the, the point there again is to just very clearly delineate who owns what you're giving up this product. It's not owned by any other company. And that just to, to kind of have a little safety check there. Jordan Casper is an engineer with the Defense Digital Service. Ari Chavukula, a policy wrangler with DDS, is also with us as we talk about open source software in DoD and the relaunch of Code.mil. They're back with us for another few minutes after another quick break on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Servio. Thanks for listening to federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. As we wrap up our conversation with Ari Chavukula and Jordan Casper from the Defense Digital Service, talking about the relaunch of Code.mil and open source software within the Defense Department. And just to wrap us up, because I know we only have a, a few minutes left with you, earlier in our conversation, I think you both alluded to some examples of things that have been successfully developed in the open throughout DOD. Um, Anything you want to share or, or highlight in particular? Hey, so uh, yeah. I've got, uh, this, oh, Go sorry, this is Aria. I think the best example uh, of a project developed in the open uh, that has benefited from community feedback uh, in a lot of ways is the code.mil website itself. There's been a lot of activity around that with people suggesting uh, improvements or documentation, asking policy questions, contributing code. Uh, it's been really amazing to see exactly how engaged the um, open source community is both in, in and out of government in uh, making sure that the DOD is able to do the best job it can to open source code and that the public is aware. That's actually a really good point uh, that we didn't actually talk about before, which is that you can go to github.com slash DEPT of defense, so Department of Defense, and slash code.mil, and you can actually see all of our guidance and you can contribute to it. In fact, if you look back at the issues on that GitHub repository, you'll see all of the discussion that the DDS team had with the free and open source community uh, back last year and the ongoing conversation about the DCO process and about the licensing issue and about the intent and about the contributing documents. So that's actually a really good point. Um, I mentioned uh, AdvisorNet, ANET. Uh, that was actually taken over by NATO. So uh, that's uh, NCI. Uh, agency. So you can uh, look that up. That's a great example. But we have a lot of other little examples. There are small pockets of really good work that are uh, going on around the department. So for example, there's a product called uh, a tool called Salsa, uh, salvaging static analysis. That's actually been, was produced by um, the Air Force 92nd. And the, the goal there was uh, malware detection in binary executable files. So you've got some binary file that is a you, that you, you know, is going to be run on a computer on a computer system somewhere, and you want to check and see if there's any malware embedded in it. 
Well, they produce a tool that can inspect those binaries and look for signatures of, of malware. And it's a small tool, but it's really useful. And hey, guess what? I bet other people are doing malware detection, right? That's a pretty common thing that security teams do. And so being able to open source that, it's open source right now. Um, again, Department of Defense, GitHub, slash Salsa, um, that people can go and contribute to, make better. Uh, and you talk about all the security stuff we just talked about with vulnerability disclosure programs and making things in, uh, in the open more secure. Hey, there's a great example of how to make them more secure right there. The only thing that I would end with is uh, a quick shout out to the code.gov team. And I know there's a little bit of confusion, code.mil, code.gov. So OMB, Office of Management and Budget Policy, M-16-21, it was a thing that set up the open source pilot. That's what we're instructed, um, the DOD is instructed to comply with in the 2018 NDAA. And it's also the piece of uh, policy that set up the code.gov team. And they actually operate across the government. So they're going across all agencies of the federal government to track and inventory all the great code that's being open sourced. So if you want to see about more projects outside of DOD that are being open sourced, I encourage you to check out code.gov. They also have a lot of really good information on the policy and the law and where uh, open source sits within the federal government more broadly. Awesome. Sorry, if I can add something. Yeah, uh, this is Ari. Uh, I'd, I'd like to end on an appeal to uh, federal employees to look into code.gov to find their agency or code.mil if you're within the DOD uh, and talk to us or them about open sourcing your projects. Uh, and I'd also like to appeal to members of the public, anyone who isn't a federal employee, uh, to contribute to whatever projects that you, uh, to, to look at the projects that are available, uh, make use of whatever you can and contribute back, fi back fixes and features as you find them. And if you have any questions about where to go, you can reach DDS about code.mil at code at DDS.mil. So we've got an email inbox that you can reach us at for any of those questions. That's Jordan Casper, an engineer with the Defense Digital Service. The voice you heard just before that, Ari Chavukula, a policy wrangler at DDS, joining us to talk about the relaunch of code.mil. One last break here, and when we come back, an update on cloud computing in DoD. John Hale, the Cloud Portfolio Chief at the Defense Information Systems Agency, joins us. This is on DoD on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Jared Serbu. Back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM, this is on DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. And as we finish up this week's show, a quick update on several matters related to cloud computing from the perspective of the Defense Information Systems Agency, which has the lead on a lot of DOD's cloud activities, notwithstanding the new work that's underway by DOD's Cloud Executive Steering Group and its big forthcoming cloud contract. Our guest for this is John Hale. He's the Cloud Portfolio Chief at DISA. DISA, of course, plays a central role in just about all aspects of DOD's journey toward a wider embrace of cloud computing, from developing the security requirements guide and the secure cloud computing architecture to help ensure DoD information is kept safe in commercial cloud environments to running DoD's own private cloud, Mill Cloud, to a wide array of support services to help individual defense components move their applications from legacy environments to new cloud service offerings. I spoke with Hale at the annual West Conference in San Diego just after he delivered a presentation to DoD customers there on DISA's cloud services. John, first of all, thanks for doing this. And let me start with some questions on cloud security. Um, one of the things that grabbed me from your presentation here was that by the end of the year, DOD is probably going to have three or four different options available for cloud providers 
that can handle classified data, which is really a culmination of several years of, of hard work on your part and on industry's part. You want to delineate what, what some of those options are or, or, or are going to be, I should say? Sure. So. Uh, so we, we've offered MillCloud 1.0 on the high side for, for several years, uh, and it's been very, very well received. Uh, but we're also rolling out MillCloud 2.0 on the, on the high side later this year. Uh, likewise, uh, Amazon, specifically AWS uh, GovCloud, has received an, a provisional, uh, a DoD provisional authorization at IO level 6 for certain workloads. Uh, so what Amazon did was they built a uh, availability zone that met all the DoD security requirements for secret level data. Um, and then, so we've also been in a lot of discussions, Microsoft's basically doing the same thing for uh, Microsoft Azure for the federal government. So I think by the end of this year, you're gonna basically see three kind of options. We're gonna have on-prem cloud, along with two off-prem cloud providers who can meet all of the DoD requirements for secret level data, so. And in addition to that, potentially, and I know you're not in charge of this, is whatever the cloud uh, executive steering group is working on, that could add yet another option. Correct. I, I don't expect them to uh, to deviate from from those kind of options, but yeah, I mean, as far as what actually comes out of the whole uh, Jedi acquisition model, is yet to be seen. So, so what what is what exactly is that restriction on the Amazon uh, on the Amazon contract about, or the Amazon product about at IL level six? So the Amazon uh, availability zone that was built uh, was specifically for NGA. So NGA let that contract, uh, which was was for the intelligence community, and and it was it was jointly accredited by the intelligence community and the DOD. So they received a DOD provisional authorization for level six, but it was limited specifically to US Transcom's data uh, because they were kind of the uh, the first ones out of the gate who said we needed Amazon Web Services on Cipernet. Um, but the uh, approving official who signed that provisional authorization has said that if there's significant demand from other portions of the DOD for that capability, that that can be opened up for other, other services. So. And on the MillCloud piece of this, you, you mentioned in your presentation that your industry partner for MillCloud 2.0 has just gotten a DoD provisional authorization to operate at impact level five. It, it's not totally clear to me why they had to go through the security requirements guide, the, the, what, what, what's sometimes called the FedRAMP Plus process, when they're operating entirely inside your data centers, connected directly to the DoD information network, et cetera. Can you explain that a little bit? So that was a uh, that was a that was a decision we had to make early on, um, and so we had a couple of choices. We could have gone down the traditional RMF framework model and gone for a traditional ATO, uh, but we chose to go down the road of a DoD provisional authorization because what what we wanted to do is we wanted to be able to stand up to mission partners and say these these providers all met the same security requirements. So whether you're comparing an off-prem commercial cloud provider or an on-prem commercial cloud provider, they all met the same security requirements and they're all providing the same level of security for your data. Above and beyond that, that's your responsibility. So so by, by pursuing a DOD provisional authorization, uh, we were able to create a level playing field where you can do an apples to apples comparison between all the capabilities. Yeah, and I guess by implication that also says there's no preferential treatment here just because they're living in in our centers. Correct. So uh, you know, I, I am I'm in a in a in an interesting uh, situation in the fact that uh, as the 
as the cloud uh, services uh, leader for DISA, uh, I'm responsible for both our on-prem cloud capabilities along with facilitating off-prem cloud capabilities. So when a DOD mission partner comes to us, whether they leverage an off-prem cloud capability such as Amazon or Microsoft Azure or Oracle or Salesforce or whoever it happens to be, or whether they leverage our on-prem capabilities such as MillCloud uh, or other capabilities like that, um, we're good, right? As long as they can meet their mission needs and we're able to satisfy their needs and provide them services, um, I don't really have a preference which way they go. And uh, so I happen to be in a little bit of a unique position in the fact that I can be the honest broker in the room uh, and, and, and make sure mission partners are making good choices, so. In, in any case, you know, DOD is going to have data and processing scattered in multiple places outside of what we would traditionally think of as the Dodens. So that's going to potentially make things harder to monitor, to track, to have situational awareness over. And I think this thing called SCCA is one of your solutions to that. Can you describe a little bit what that is? Correct, so the Secure Cloud Computing Architecture, or SCCA, is all about putting the necessary security pieces in place uh, in the various commercial cloud service providers infrastructure so that they can meet DoD security requirements. The, the actual cloud service provider, they're responsible for making sure that the infrastructure meets DoD security requirements. But once you go above that, once you start laying in operating systems and, uh, and applications, it becomes the mission owner's responsibility to make sure that they meet all the DoD security requirements. Um, SCCA is about putting the necessary pieces in place so that those mission owners can meet all the DoD security requirements while also sending back critical information from a uh, cyber perspective so that we can aggregate that data to find uh, the tipping point information about uh, adversary and, and attacks. So. Say a little bit more about what happens to that data once it comes back to you. So once the data comes back, we put it into our big data analytics system, uh, which has a myriad of AI tools and machine learning capability to try to find uh, that attack vector that may, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things, may be noise, but it, it's the attack vector that's being hit on at a particular time. Uh, and so uh, using the big data analytics capabilities and the, and the various machine learning and, and AI capabilities from, from lots of different commercial providers, uh, we can take all that information uh, and kind of pick out the pieces where we can see the adversaries attacking. So. The sense I got from your presentation is that mission owners are going to have some degree of flexibility about exactly how they implement SCCA. Can you talk a bit about that? So, uh, SCCA is just that, it's an architecture. Uh, mission owners can have, will have lots of options about how they want to meet their security requirements. Uh, one option is they can roll their own, right? We'll give them all of the, basically the blueprint, all of the, uh, all the artifacts about what capabilities they need and what, what, what software and hardware packages meet those capabilities. Uh, and they can build their own. Uh, they can use ours, which are a set of shared services that, that DISA offers as part of our defense working capital funded uh, compute capabilities. Uh, likewise, we've had lots of discussions with commercial cloud vendors. Uh, I think the big guys you're going to see start to offer their own SCCA suite of services above and beyond their cloud service uh, hosting capabilities that allow DOD mission partners to meet those security requirements without necessarily having to go to another vendor. And likewise, I think you'll see some third-party vendors who will get in that space also. Um, it's, a, it's a space which a lot of vendors have worked in in the past inside DOD data centers, so it's a space that's very, very, very common and, and known to them. So simply transposing that into a commercial cloud environment is a pretty straightforward thing. 
So once you start layering on the, those managed security services on top of that cloud architecture, I mean, at some point, does it become redundant with things that are required in the SRG, like the cloud access point for levels five and six and that sort of thing? No, actually, so they're all, they all kind of uh, augment each other. Uh, you know, the, the various parts of the cloud security requirements guide lay out all the security requirements from from ship to from uh, from ship to stern uh, that necessary to meet all the requirements, um, but the various parts of SCCA, including the cloud access point, uh, the virtual data center management services, the virtual data center security stack, all of those are are pieces that uh, kind of uh, augment each other. Uh, in order to meet all their security requirements. So I don't really think they're competing as much as they're augmenting each other, so. Uh, do you get to, a, I guess my question is, do you get to a point where there are so many layers of different kinds of security that you're unnecessarily slowing yourself down so, and, and, and creating data latency? So I will say that it's of great concern. Uh, we want to make sure that as we move, as we move capabilities to the commercial cloud that we don't, we don't create so many bottlenecks or hurdles that it actually ends up impacting performance. Uh, at the end of the day, this is all about uh, creating an environment that is elastic, scalable, uh, that allows our warfighter to be more agile, uh, but also uh, uh, at a cost savings and, and at a performance gain. So um, we've been very diligent to make sure that we're not duplicating efforts. Uh, we, we rolled out our original cloud access points uh, last year and uh, they were way overkill, right? They're, they're trying to do too many things. Uh, so we're actually, with the new cloud access points we're rolling out right now, they're actually uh, much more streamlined towards cloud operations. So uh, we're taking lessons learned from what we've been doing for the last couple of years and, and applying that towards production to make them, make them better for the warfighter. You mentioned things like SCCA might be offered as a suite as a managed service. What, what's the current thinking to, to the degree there is any about where, where the delineation is between what is inherently governmental, what, what the government needs to continue to do once it's offloaded a lot of these workloads to the cloud? So our uh, risk management office, our, our proving official, uh, worked very closely with the DOD CIO, recently uh, signed out a new memo that actually delineated which responsibilities are inherently governmental and which ones can be contracted out. Um, and, and it's a, a large portion of those security requirements uh, can be contracted out. So uh, that's the reason why I said, you know, some of the things we're doing in SCCA, I expect commercial providers to get in that market uh, and, and provide those capabilities also. Um, there are certain things that are inherently governmental and that really comes down to the analytics portion. Uh, you know, the, 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 the analyzing the actual data define that tipping point, that, that trigger, that's, that, that is inherently governmental, but pretty much every other portion of the system can really be contracted out. I want to talk to you about a couple non-security things before I let you go. You, you talked a bit about sort of lessons learned by, by you and mission partners as they have gone to the cloud. And I think one of them that you highlighted was it's generally a bad idea to move an application if it's not ready for the cloud. Talk, talk, talk about some of the lessons learned in that area. So we talk about um, when, you know, when cloud first started to roll into the conversation years ago, it was all about cost savings. Uh, and we had a lot of mission partners who wanted to move to the cloud because they were going to save money, save money, save money. Um, and, and what we have found is that as mission partners take legacy applications that were poorly designed to begin with, that have been running in traditional DOD data centers, and you don't modernize them, you don't make any changes to them, you simply move them to a cloud model, uh, what, you're, what we're finding out is the applications are chatty, 
they have lots of uh, uh, reach back, lots of interfaces with legacy systems, and that, that I.O., that reach back and forth, has actually created environments where the applications actually cost more to run in a cloud environment than they did in a legacy data center. Uh, so one of the things that we we push mission partners very very strongly towards now is the app rationalization, right? The first step in moving to the cloud is app rationalization, doing a hard look at everything that you own and operate and making sure that these really do fit in the cloud model. And if they don't, then you need to make some key decisions. Do you modernize them uh, or do you kill them? And, and that's, that's hard decisions that mission partners have to make between now and the time they move their stuff to the cloud. At the same time, you also mentioned that leadership is a key issue here, and sometimes you need a forcing function to make those, to force those decisions about what to keep and what to kill. Transcom's the example here, right? Absolutely. So we use Transcom as our, as our, uh, as our, as our beacon case. Uh, you know, the, the Transcom commander, the four star, came down and said, uh, all of our applications will be moved out of our legacy data centers by a certain date. He, so he basically drew a line in the sand and said, uh, every application will move to the cloud, or I will kill it. And uh, so it's been called the cloud it or kill it kind of mantra. And, uh, and so, but it takes that kind of leadership, that kind of push uh, to make things happen. Uh, and, and we've seen that across other ports of the DOD uh, following Transcom's lead, so. One more thing on cost. Uh, where are we right now in terms of the comparisons between on-prem, mill-cloud type services and, and purely commercial? So our mill-cloud 2.0 cost sheets just came out. Uh, to they're available to all DoD mission partners right now, uh, but basically MillCloud 2.0, it's going to be about a 60 to 70 percent cost savings over MillCloud 1.0. Uh, it's about a 15 percent premium, 15 percent uh, additional cost over off-prem commercial services uh, such as Amazon or, or Microsoft Azure. Uh, but the the benefit you get there is you know the contract's already been let, so all you have to do is MIPR money over and get your cloud services. So. Uh, mission partners have a lot of hard decisions to make over the next uh, 12 months as far as their planning for cloud and where they're going to go and how they're going to consume it. So. That cost delta between MillCloud 1 and 2 is pretty substantial. How'd you get there? So MillCloud 1 was uh, based on commercial software, but it was government-owned, government-operated. Uh, government engineers engineered it and built it using commercial capabilities. Uh, MillCloud 2, uh, we contracted all that capability out. So we let a contract uh, where the contractor is responsible for the hardware, they're responsible for day-to-day -day operations and maintenance of the capability. Uh, and, and by picking a, a vendor who does it on a day-to-day on a -day basis, uh, there's a lot of cost savings in there because they already had the capabilities in place to manage other clouds also. So. John Hale is the Cloud Portfolio Chief at the Defense Information Systems Agency, talking with me at the recent West Conference in San Diego. Earlier in the program, we talked with Jordan Casper and Ari Chavukula from the Defense Digital Service about the relaunch of Code.mil. If you missed that part of the show, this week's program and all our past episodes are at federalnewsradio.com slash on DOD and in our podcast feed. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. That's it for this week's edition of On DOD. Thanks, as always, for joining us. I'm Jared Serbu. So long. You've been listening to On DOD with Federal News Radio DOD reporter Jared Serbu. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show or any of our weekly programs anytime at federalnewsradio.com. On DOD, only on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com.